This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander, and with me as always is my co-host and chief nasty guy. It's Hank. I don't know. I don't have an intro. Head nasty guy. Um, <laughs> you could have just said, "Hey, I'm Alexander Nash, and the freeze frame drove me insane." Here's Hank. That would have been good. I guess, well, it's too late. Fuck it. Yeah, I'm Hank. Welcome to Death by DVD. And I guess by that you can tell uh, we're going to talk maybe about something British tonight. Maybe something British. Faintly. Um, yeah, British, Italian, Greek. It's going to be all over the place. Mostly the UK, but it, it falls all over those places. Definitely. And uh, we're going to be talking about video nasties. And if you don't know what that is, we'll get into it in a minute. But isn't just the sheer fact that the word nasty is used. That is a very UK term to describe what is nothing more than just a, it's a horror film. It's a particularly gory or violent horror film and only in the UK would you come up with such a revered term as it's a nasty. It's just, I don't know, I've never liked the name of it pers- I personally. I think it was first applied in the 70s to novels like Rats and stuff like that, and later, you know, became uh, acquainted with the video term as it added on. Because you had the video, the whole market boom was like 1979 or so, so it eventually was applied, you know, probably through uh, writing. I mean, that was the the biggest way uh, to get your word out. It was in an article, and they used to call books in England nasties when there were horror books it's just I don't know it's just such a British colloquial term but um I like the term anyways. but it, at the same time it just it brings up a connotation right off the bat that you know um you're gonna get into something dirty and as we'll eventually get into and, and talk about more more and more once you find and watch the video nasties man it's a big disappointment it's like somebody got you socks for Christmas sometimes when you get to the end of a video nasty, and it makes it quite ludicrous for some of the reasons many of these movies were completely banned and people, you know, lost their careers and lives over, you know, stuff like Don't Go in the Cellar. It's kind of silly. Well, okay, like, um, to introduce this, we'll be doing a monthly, I guess. I guess that's what we've decided on. Once a month, we'll be breaking down the... British video nasty craze of the 1980s, and we'll go individually through them, one by one, all 72, uh, and eventually we'll probably get to the um, section three, depending on if we keep this up or not, but we will get into the whole thing in reoccurring series about video nasties we'll be doing. I think more than likely we'll end up keeping this up as we enter year 11 of doing this show. Now that we have some steady form of something we can stick to progressively and continue doing list-wise, because that's something personal about you and I. We both fucking love lists and making lists. So now that we have a preset one of 72 movies, 32 for purists. Or is what, 31 for purists or 32? It is 30, I believe the first list is 39 and the second list is 33. I believe that's how uh, the we'll get into what all these different sections were and why they are separated into three different sections. But I, I might have those two reversed. So I'm pretty sure it's the first 39 are the big major ones. Those are the ones that were uh, outright banned or supremely edited after a whole court case and a whole bunch of different shit that went on in the 1980s due to the uh, the video market becoming a boom. And England at the time. 
I recall hearing Kim Newman say at some point, if you consider yourself a purist, there are 32 on the core of uh, Video Nasty's list of the essential band movies from Scotland, La- yeah, Scotland Yard in the original list. And something that's pretty intriguing about the Video Nasties is, you know, we're Americans, so this didn't really reflect or, or hit any of us. So when we were teenagers, and it doesn't matter what generation you're from, I mean, if, if you were part of the generation when this was happening, obviously it had a, a lot more hold on you. But from the 90s into the 2000s, it was a legendary sort of thing and definitely a badge of honor between your friends to have seen or acquired a big collection of Video Nasties. And it's kind of like we talked recently about black exploitation. A lot of people, you and I, uh, went through phases where we both really, really liked it. Saw you know seven hundred, eight hundred black exploitation movies. Then that's been it for a decade plus. You know, you just get off on it, and um, then you don't anymore. The video nasties sometimes are the same thing. You know, I remember being a teenager, and and almost like every other story you'll hear, uh, I saw. I spit on your grave, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, Cannibal, Ferox, Cannibal Apocalypse, um, Cannibal Holocaust, all the cannibal movies. And then you slowly hunt them down, you see everything, and by the time you get to stuff like um, Possession, you, you're just, if you try and linear and watch every nasty, you see why uh, a lot of these things got banned. I mean, you sit down Parliament and every member and make them watch 32 movies that sparsely have anything going on outside of violence and gore, of course, you're going to start a mass hysteria and kind of what happened well i mean to get super technical about really what happened at the time um and it is i i just looked it up it's the first section is 39 and the second section is 33 movies so, so what's um, that well, i mean in total we'll definitely i think do yeah everything. 72 in total so we'll just break them down to sections as we go because we're going to start with the section ones first and we'll go through the first 39, then we'll get to the section two, and then we'll get to the probably the section three. And basically the s- different sections are section one were films that were actually prosecuted for being obscene. And then the next 33 were ones that went to basically court and couldn't get prosecuted or they didn't think they could get prosecuted. And section three were all like very suspicious titles. There were ones that they like didn't like but knew they probably couldn't get a conviction on so they just kind of were uh looked at like i'm pretty sure basket cases in the in section three so um and section two is stuff like evil dead which is one of the more heroic stories with a, a video nasty situation a movie that went up for appeal fought and won and ended up getting a release and a censored release. But you know, the, the whole point of, I think tonight's big show, what we're getting into is a big discussion on censorship and then some Italian stuff. (laughs) And generally what happened was there was a huge craze in the 1980s for video stores and corporate um, entities really had well, the video craze, the you know, led into that. I mean, because that was what seventy eight, seventy nine, that the the home video, you know, really popped off, and you had. That's what, when people were starting to get recorders. But when it, I'd say probably about nineteen eighty eighty one is when people really like started opening video stores, and it was the wild west back then because anybody could open a video. So there's a lot of uh, mafia guys, not so much in the UK or you know anywhere specifically, but a lot of unscrupulous business entities opening these stores as well as just regular people, but there were video stores just popping up literally everywhere. And the government pretty much didn't like the fact, and it's not directly directed at these people. Like we've got to crush, 
and had let capitalism reign supreme. It wasn't so much about that, but that all got figured into it much later about having basically corporate control over um, over videos, over over because um, I mean that's where the money is 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 the corporations, and also just controlling the people of the uh, of the area these video stores in because the thing that they seem to focus on the most with video nasties were um, different aspects of film. And a lot of these films went to the theater and were rated already. But the ones that were even rated already for the theater, they weren't so sure could be released on video intact because you can rewind the video, you can pause the video, you can fulfill some sort of sexual need by this video. So even things that had already passed their normal harsh censorship in England had to be re-reviewed for video to see if it could be released on video like this. After all, after all these bills passed though. You also had the stipulation that we don't necessarily know what's in that video is what's in that video because we don't know who these people are. So it says it's gone with the wind, but it very well could be hardcore fisting porn and you don't want six year olds to get a hold of hardcore fisting porn. So now we have to take everything that seems mildly even edgy. I mean, there was a lot of, well-received uh, semi-major budget American war films that were caught up in the video nasty scandal because their titles were a little bit edgier and they might have uh, had some connotation to have something to do with porn. Some of the more ridiculous ones, and I think this is always hysterical. I love telling people this because I don't know. I just think it's hysterical. Anything with a tool in the title had to be banned because, I, and this is really how I take it and how I feel, you know, it's sort of a bourgeois aspect that parliament could sit and, and have the police watch all these movies and they could sit and watch these movies and it wouldn't affect them or turn them into mass murdering weirdos. But the average person would sit and watch these movies. So you're giving this uh, uh, connotation that the average person is of less intelligence. So if the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the title of the movie, some hick is going to go get a chainsaw and kill his mom with it. That's really what you think, I, I guess. Well, that was one of the big ones... Um that the censorship, basically the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification, didn't really like. I mean, more, for some of the more major reasons things got banned or um, got confiscated by the police were um, mo like a lot of them were because of the advertising, the artwork on the video box, because some of those uh, pieces of artwork were. Um, and that was the wild west. Because they're trying to sell the video, so they're going to make it look. Ex exploitive as they possibly could. It's like Driller also, Killer was mainly banned because it had one scene of violence, but the box art was so pulling. I mean, it's the one scene of violence in Driller Killer. There's no spoiler there. It's the guy with the fucking drill killing the guy, and that is what caught people's attention. When you added uh, more enticing titles like Massacre, or like one of the movies we'll eventually be getting to tonight, Absurd, uh, what did you think? Kim Newman said this. What did you think was going to happen when you titled a movie something like that? Of course it was going to get caught by any form of, of censorship or any bureau that was willing to do censorship because the title was alluring enough to uh, to capture it. Because some of these major reasons that they were banning things besides artwork were also um, they were really particular about sex mixed with violence, um, i.e. rape, things like that. So any sort of sexual connotations and in a violent film those were immediately poo-pooed and wanted, like they wanted to prosecute um the makers of the video as well as the people who were stocking the videos also imitatable violence and that's where the um like driller killer and a lot of other things uh, came in it's because 
people are going to all of a sudden figure out you can use power tools to kill people. They did like like knives and bats and things that were used in gang warfare. They didn't like to see in in, uh, in horror films because somebody's going to pick up that weapon and strike out one day because they're all stupid. Basically, we don't trust any of the people who could be getting these videos. Anybody could be getting them. Children might see them because there's no theater owner to direct the children away. Things like that. I mean, it was, as you were saying earlier about the the bougie-ness of the whole thing. I mean, that's what a lot of it was because the common man shouldn't be able to interpret these things. I don't know how they're going to react. I, however, I'm an officer of Scotland Yard. I, I know my mental capacities are completely intact and I should be able to handle these things and tell you what you can watch and not watch. Which literally, there's a guy that is living in this world right now that believes and says that. His name is Peter Kruger, and he was the head of this commission that was pretty much assigned by Scotland Yard. He's a police officer to roust up these movies, thousands upon thousands of movies. Now, we just discussed that there's a core 72 uh, considered in the video nasties list, but they went through everything. Things like uh, The Last Little Whorehouse or The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, just anything that could, could be even, porn. Yeah, it could be lewd, it could be blue. So, uh, for some part, you can take into consideration that it seems like the police didn't actually feel like fighting crime or keeping uh, the UK safe. So they picked on these people. And I mean, that's frightening that the police are sitting around all day, the whole police force watching fucking Joe D'Amato movies to make sure that six year olds aren't going to get a hold of it to where a lot of these percentages that they started to release to the public via tabloids and you know other forms of literature at the time were all very incredibly incorrect. You know, something like 40% of six-year-olds in the UK are watching Video Nasties, and then it turns out after a little bit of research is done on the situation and the subject matter that, like, seven fucking six-year-olds filled out this flyer and that the math they're using equates somehow to 47%, and most of the titles that the kids identified having seen weren't even real movies in the first place. And that has a lot to do with the the religious fervor behind it because it was a conservative administration at the time. You had uh, Margaret Thatcher as the PM, and you had a woman named Mary Whitehouse who took this up as her pet cause, who was just some – I don't want to use inappropriate terminology, but she was a dried-up old cunt. She was just a fussy old British woman who very much believed in the church and – these are horrible things that can get in the hands of children. But what about the, oh, the children. And that's how this whole thing got really started as well as like pressure in the media. Um, and then once you have pressure in the media, then you have, um, people trying to introduce bills into parliament and that's what they did. And that's how this whole thing really got started of the actual banning of, of films in England, especially, um, pre-certificate like because you had to be issued a certificate they had to re-censor everything after it came out of the theater as well Uh, you had to just review the movie for home video release specifically and get your certificate which they still have a certificate system there today but it's a lot way more lax than it used to be there's still a fair amount of censorship in the uk but no way as much as there was in the 1980s and like we said before they got broken into sections so section one were things that actually got prosecuted, actually had to have cuts made. And if you possessed or were found to possess renting a pre-certificate copy of a movie we'll be talking about a little bit later, um, say Anthropophagus, you could very well go to jail for possessing this video, just in, even in your own home. Um, I mean, some people's houses are related. A lot of video dealer stores were raided, and 
their entire stock was taken away from them. And who does that affect more? Does that affect some mom and pop shop who have put all their money into this? And once you've had a ton of video sees, you're going out of business. And I think personally think that was a good kind of excuse for them to control the video market, who they would allow to own a store to be able to rent these videos out. Basically people who could afford it. And you just kind of put your foot on the little man, which is what they did a lot of the time. And people went to jail. So a lot of people did end up going to jail and got lengthy sentences for owning obscene materials. Um, and some of the films on this list are absolutely ridiculous for you, for like anybody to indicate for Peter Kruger and Scotland Yard to indicate that don't go near the park is in some way going to damage or twist you in any way. Cause that movie is just plainly kind of a piece of shit and like not even particularly that violent at times, especially compared to where we are in today's uh, film market. I mean, it's, it's tame, very tame um, to today's standards, but we all got to be very concerned to build up our walls and keep all that horrible progressive media away from our children. I think one of the interesting things you just touched upon is who is affected by this. And you're talking about Mary Whitehouse for a little bit. She, at her core, was a petty moralist. She stuck her nose into business that it didn't belong into for the, uh, I guess, moral sanctity of the UK and the children. And what we have to think of the children. She's one of those early voices of somebody that's nagging and annoying, somewhat like Tipper Gore in the United States, which comparatively, I'd much rather us have somebody like Tipper Gore than Mary Whitehouse. She admitted, even on television multiple times, she never saw Video Nasty. I mean, her, her whole reasoning behind this is, was because somebody brought it to her attention and it was something that was in the news. She was a busybody who wanted to have something literally to do and had connections to Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher's involvement isn't nearly as, as, as heavy as most people like to think. Now, she did speak up on it. She had some problems with it, but it was mostly Mary as the, the voice here. And she worked with a lot of people. She worked with... Um, how many times does Hank say PM instead of MP? A lot of other conservative PMs, I think at the time they got most everybody that was was a PM to, you know, lobby against what was going on and it uh who what was the one guy's name? Sir Graham Bright. Like Graham Bright. Yeah, Sir Graham Bright was the one that really uh, Peter Kruger and Graham Bright worked together with Mary more so than anyone else, rounding and collecting and these James things. And James Furman, who was the psychologist who gave them all the bunk data to indicate that children were watching these things in rows. Because when you have a doctor's name on something, it sounds much more logical. And you know, they made it even seem like it was a, a parliamentary group that was working to collect this data. No, it was just a group that named themselves Parliament. That was just part of their name. They actually had several members that were were uh, PMs, but they are MPs, but they weren't, you know, not enough to have a collective or anything that was monitored under parliament. So again, that's using a name pretty much to use a term that our president likes to use is rousting a witch hunt. You know, you're starting these fires and you're accusing these people of uh, turning the kids against England and making it an unsafe, livable country. And that's what Margaret Thatcher was saying at the time, you know, pretty much that it was fucking Mad Max going on in England and that no one could get a job and that it was the most awful, horrible time. Uh, quite like what PMs say uh, about England right now. So 
Do things ever really change? I think a big problem is people don't remember incidents like this. Uh, they don't acknowledge incidents like this, so they let it happen again. And when it happens again, what's it going to be? You know, the internet being banned or... God, I mean, porn is banned in some countries. You can't jerk off. That's crazy. Well, I mean, you can, but you just better not get caught. Well, it'll twist your little brain, Hank. You just don't understand what you're, what fire you're playing with here. Um, I mean, maybe that's the problem. Maybe they have uh, some value here. You and I watched Anthropophagus when we were teenagers, and now we're both uh, morbidly upset, and we can't do anything right in life. You know that that well, we're lo- we're lonesome farmers in the English countryside, and we just can't get past. That is true, though. We are kind of pieces of shit, but that's beside the point. And I'm not a lonesome farmer. I'm very happy shearing sheep. Because um, I live in the English and, countryside. Like, one of the big deals about all this and what really set people off was the idea of snuff films making it to the market. And they were all very worried about seeing real people getting killed in films. And when you watch a video, especially something like Cannibal Holocaust, um, which has a very reality-based take at times, uh, now on Blu-ray and DVD, it's a completely different story, and you see the framework of how a film was created and now and when you go back though and you had a 12th generation yeah that's what i really want to focus on here too is that we brought up and kind of dismissed a little bit the video market and having home video uh, allowed people to make copies and share this with people so when like you're just getting into you're watching a 10th generation copy of cannibal holocaust it looks pretty real yeah you can't really even tell what's going on i mean if anybody like i did back when i was a kid who was into not so much tape trading. I was just purchasing bootlegs of tapes. Um, I wasn't trading as much, but people really got into tape trading, especially in England during the, the whole band scenario, people were trading tapes back and forth. And when you see something that's been copied a few times or off, say like a Japanese laser disc, it ends up looking so much more real than, cause I mean, that's a lot of what it was, the visceral reaction to these films Especially like, ooh, this one's banned. Oh, I bet I'm going to see something crazy. And you take it home and you watch it. It it kind of gave it so much more like power and umph to it. Um, as opposed to now when you get like a Blu-ray copy of some of these movies. It's just like, why was everybody so crazy over this movie? It's just like, because it seemed like some real hardcore shit at the time. You can see where there are like makeup creases now in Blu-ray. You can see all these different things. But on a VHS tape, it looked way more gnarly than it actually actually really was. So that's what really kind of set people off, um, especially people who aren't. I mean, if you think about it, people in government, police, they're not, you know, so much into art. So when you're not into art, you don't understand context. You don't understand any of these things. And you're just watching for the sheer sake of the violence within them. You don't see any of the beauty of that art coming together. So you just like, well, that's. That's horrible. That's somebody getting killed. I know that's a real person getting killed. Well, I don't think you understand special effects. I don't understand. Well, I think I, even today I find it interesting when people tell me, like, I saw something so real on YouTube, and then you watch the uh, the video, and you go, these are actors. They're obviously acting. No, that was real. It's like, do you not understand what acting is, the difference between acting and real life? No one talks like this. This is scripted. This is very obviously scripted. No, nah, I think it's real. It's I mean, we're still going through the same sort of things today on kind of the the internet um, concept of the way things are going. Of just like I, I definitely know that this is something more insidious than it 
probably actually is. But there also is a bunch of really weird snuff shit on the internet now. If you look hard enough and you really want to watch that shit, it's there for you too. Me personally, I'm not too particularly interested in any of that, like Rotten.com, any of that. that I'm not into it. I don't care to see. I like fake shit. I love watching fake shit. Real violence, like, disgusts me in every single way. Fake violence, I think, is fun and hilarious. Rotten has been gone for many years, but I think there's, it's just a term people really like to throw around when it comes to gore or war footage. Uh, I mean, there are people that have recorded murders, but for all intents and purposes, that's not snuff, because in theory, snuff is made, you know, mass-produced. That there's... Specifically to make money. Like, you're, I'm killing someone to sell a film to someone else because they want her to watch someone die. It does happen, but there's no real record of that sort of thing happening particularly. Yeah, there's not so far a mass-produced murder company, and, you know... Uh, people always, I guess, like the idea or the mysticism behind it, but with so many horror fans, so many hardcore collectors, even people like us, if snuff existed, we unfortunately would have come across it by accident. More people would have turned it into the police. It would be a more discussed thing, and that's why it's used kind of as a boogeyman, especially uh, in the early days or the, the boom of horror uh, in the 80s and 90s, or well, in the more or less the 70s and 80s. Because it was very easy to attack something with the title of, well, this is Snuff, and it was able to get it banned if you couldn't, you know, look things up, even down to, like, the Finlay movie, Snuff. It's a fucking atrocious movie. If you make it to the and end... very obviously fake. Yeah, if, if you can make it to the end of that movie, just to see the slightly funny, cool effects, uh, you know, hands off to you, I own it. I made the dumb mistake of buying it, because it was one of those things that you were even just discussing... When I was 16 or 17, I went out of my way to find it. Everybody heard about this movie, and it's part of the fun is finally hunting it down, and I saw it on a very old VHS, and it was very gritty and flickery, and it looked awful. It lost tracking and color, and it added some suspense and anxiety to the movie. Now that I own it on this awesome, cool restoration, even the ending is lackluster now. Even the thing that made Snuff so much fun is sitting through this awful fucking movie to see the ridiculous ending. Now it's not even fun because it looks just so damn good. So I guess the lesson learned with video nasties and things have changed in England. There is still a fair amount of censorship. Yes, but it nowhere near to where it was in the eighties. Cause this was well, like, these movies are still this, banned. I mean, some of them are not all of them. Um, a lot of them have been released with cuts. Um, some scenes are still not allowed, but a lot of them are just out on Blu-ray with zero cuts at all. They're no longer considered to be obscene by the, Department of Public Prosecutions. Well, wasn't it found out in 2010 that the Video Nasties Act had never actually been signed, and so they dismissed the entire thing and then re-signed it in in its full uh, growth? Because essentially everyone that went to jail and lost all their belongings, they shouldn't have done that. It was illegal. You know, it, people, it was never signed into act. So it was re-signed in 2010, and that's what makes a lot of this ludicrous is you can order from Severin and Vinegar Syndrome and Blue Underground these legendary movies and get them sent to your mailbox. But all of a sudden, right now, it's not horrible to watch them. If you watch them now, you're not going to turn into a psychotic killer. But in 1983, if you did. So why don't they care anymore? And it's simply because even as you were discussing at the very beginning of this, all of it in general is just a ploy to pretty much control the public and what they see and what they think. Um, you know, it's very common for people to do this and kind of a cop out, but just comparing it to the, uh, the Nazis, that's what they're pretty much famous for, for doing to their people. And you look at 
the UK, well, the United States, these major countries that you wouldn't expect it from, but subliminally and slowly, uh, your rights to even see certain things uh, have been taken away even from before you were born and progressively now. They're just slowly being removed from you, but you don't remember the last time it happened, so it doesn't seem to bother you. What's the easiest way to control people? Fear. And in the 1980s, it was horrible videos that are going to turn you into a psychotic killer. And now it's immigrants are coming into the country and boy, they sure don't look like you, do they? It's all the same shit. It's all getting you afraid of something. So you keep electing the same dipshit officials to into office to protect you from these ghost threats that you are just so certain are going to be the end of your life. But Life has been going forever. Life progresses, hence the fucking word progression. I mean, that's kind of how things are going to go. You can't not progress. You can't go back to a time when things were simpler because that doesn't exist anymore because times are no longer simpler. So trying to control the public at large, trying to control what people think and see, I mean, that's fascism and that's what we're continuing to do now just in different forms it's no longer art fascism it's fucking fascism towards people who don't look like us don't sound like us um oh look at the baby killer yeah i'm sure that lady was so happy to have that abortion i mean it's just you i mean you can't like legislate morality it's just not something you can do well, you can if you coyly figure out ways to strip people of literally, you know, uh, not even I hate the term, but I guess God given rights. You know, you should be able to choose what you see and what you decide to uh, even put into your body to a certain extent. But when it comes down to something like the video nasties, what the UK was trying to do wasn't ban horror movies. There was no bullying against it. It was literally trying to take something away from people, what they hardly even knew. You know, it wasn't like certain movies had been out for decades and decades and decades. It was a new boom that was happening because of the video market. And most of these directors, as we'll get into in a little while, like Joe D'Amato, didn't ever consider themselves artists. They considered themselves filmmakers. And like Joe D'Amato says it himself, he never thought he was an artist. He felt he never thought he was a businessman. He loved making movies, and he felt he was a everybody's director, and that's what he wanted to do in life. He went out, and he made movies, and he made products. So when the video boom hit, and he's being told, they want really weird horror movies. He went out, and he made some really weird horror movies, got some guys like George Eastman together, got some things written, produced, and done. When they wanted porn, he shot porn. When they wanted action, he shot action. These directors, these guys weren't out there significantly... Uh, plotting and ploying to make awful evil movies to affect the children or to do anything to people's minds. For the most part, guys like Joe D'Amato were just trying to make very crazy stories to take your mind off life. They didn't like making realistic, artistic movies like guys like Federico Fellini. They were out there to make uh, entertainment, and that's what they thought they were doing and for the most part were doing until the, uh, the British Board of Film said it's obscene. Well, to get into the idea of censorship, because you hear that going around a lot now, and to relate it to the video nasties era, the government coming in saying you cannot release this video or it will send you to jail, that's obscene, is one thing. You being a total Nazi on Twitter and a private company saying, hey, we don't want Nazis on our platform. We're going to let you go and you can't, you're banned from using Twitter. That's not censorship. It would be like the video 
companies saying, well, I don't want to release Anthropophagus because of the way it actually is, and I, I don't think that should be out in the public. That's still choice. That's a company choosing not to release it. You getting banned off Twitter is not censorship. That is you getting banned off a private company's website. That is not the same thing, even a little bit. You can you didn't go to jail. There's no law. There's literally you just can't use Twitter anymore, which is just a whiny, bitchy little cop out thing. If you censor me, well, go start your own Twitter. Capitalism, right? I mean, come on. Well, I mean, that's where it's we just, get into that term "God given rights," where people will use that as a defense. You know, I have Twitter this right. is not a God given right. Exactly. You have a right to say whatever you want to, but this specific venue says otherwise. So now you have to go find another venue. Try Tumblr. I don't know what to tell you. You know, uh, go find a Nazi message board and see if you get banned from there. And maybe it'll make you realize you might be a fucking Nazi. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just. The idea of what censorship is has so much to do with a government component and a legal component of there are consequences to this and legal consequences by law, via the government. You getting punched because you're a Nazi is not the same thing. That's you dealing with some other consequences. You didn't go to jail for being a Nazi. You got punched because everybody thinks you're an asshole. That's the big difference. It's a, and that person who punched you will still go to jail for assault. So I, I, I don't understand how you can equate it to being the same exact thing because it's just not. It's not the same thing at all. It's selfishness, and that's really at its core when you look at the people like Mary Whitehouse and those that were uh, – They're all fascists. <laughs> yeah, they, they're triumphantly trying to help the people, but what are you doing? I mean you're, you're banning – and even just taking what I said, Joe D'Amato not considering himself an artist, that doesn't mean his products can't be considered art. And that doesn't mean by, by banning them that you're essentially being a fucking Nazi. I mean, they collected these movies, thousands upon thousands of movies, and Peter Kruger would oversee them being burned. And that's as offensive and as heartbreaking as knowing that you know the Nazis gathered books, not just the Nazis. We do that in America all the time. You know, it's it's book burning, I think, at its core is probably more American than anything else. You know, oh, I don't agree with this, so let's take it outside and burn it. Even something like flag burning, I understand the symbolism behind it, but at its core, you're just being a fucking baby. You're just setting something on fire. I don't agree with it. I get your symbolism, but maybe something behind it might matter more than collecting a thousand copies of Absurd and Anthropophagus and Don't Go in the Woods and Driller Killer and burning them could, could have helped. You know, there might have been some sanctity with the English people of helping them instead of saying, we're going to help you by banning these movies. I mean, cause what, what did you do at the end of the day? You exhausted the police force, took a public service away from the people by doing so. I mean, cops aren't fighting crime. They're out looking for banned movies. This is ridiculous. I mean, what, what is going on? And it, it was logical. I mean, it wasn't just for a couple months. It was for years and years and years. This was logical to everyone. I mean, it was a moral fucking panic. Well, the morals of the country are going to start slipping, and then all of a sudden we're going to have immigrants living next to us. Eh, it's all the same shit. It's all just fascistic like things coming to light of wanting to control your environment 100%. And how somebody else lives their life is impinging on that in some way, shape, or form. I don't understand that. But, I mean, when you have a fascistic government, kind of like we do now, 
that's what you end up with. Hey, Hank, you can't get a salad in school anymore. We're going to replace it with burgers. Smart move. Oh, well, burgers lead to making your kids gay, and we don't want that to happen because clearly there's something wrong about that, I think. Is that science, uh, no. right? <laughs> or is it washing machines are going to make you gay now? I don't know. I try not to follow um, anything that comes out of the president's mouth anymore. And again, that's kind of a problem, too, is, you know, during the video nasty era, a lot of people could have spoken up. A lot of the guys that were creating this content um, could have come forward and said something. You know, anyone could have approached, uh, you know, the parliament and, and made a statement. And, you know, like when Tippy Gore had come up with the MPAA and, and, and the rating system and all this shit for music, musicians and artists stood up together and they, they spoke against her. And that helped being able to see Frank Zappa and Dee Snyder and these people. Oh, they're not complete lunatics, depraved on drugs, killing kids and, you know, en encouraging them to kill each other or do wild and crazy things. They're just people and they're just, you know, artists and you put a face to it. And when you didn't have that, when you didn't have anyone stepping up to help, it was kind of like, you know, the country literally was able to put up its own walls and then say anything coming in. You know, we, you know, kind of like um, the devils, which we discussed a few weeks ago. You know, t by tearing down these walls, we're not going to have any safety anymore. So we let these awful, obscene uh, movies in. Our whole society is going to fall apart. We have to continue putting up our walls and not let anyone come inside. And it's just such an arbitrary, strange thing, which happened before. And as I've made notion to a few times, people uh, forget the past. And when you forget the past, it will repeat itself and you'll act surprised like a fucking idiot. Because in the 50s... Uh, Parliament banned American horror comics and pretty much anything uh, sexual, uh, pornography in any face or shape because it's going to damage kids. It's going to harm people. And by the time the video nasties came up and happened, people had already forgotten about you know the horror comics ban. I believe that was in 1955, and it, it came because somebody wrote an article about you know, the destruction of innocence or the, you know, the obscene destruction of innocence in Great Britain. And then in 1983, somebody wrote an article with the exact same name, stirring up the exact same shit and drawing the same attention to a matter that wasn't an actual matter. And then that's where we are now, basically, is we'll be getting into all of these different films, all the different sections, but we'll just be pretty simply breaking them down into alphabetical order of which movies like the the section one the ones that were prosecuted the ones that were censored um i'll be giving as much information as i can find on specific details because i know people who still collect these vhs to this day my brother is one of them he, he's specifically looking for um pre-certificate pal vhs versions of uh, a lot of these movies expensive as shit i'll even be looking up um what to look for if you want to even collect these, which specific ones were the most banned, which video company released this version and how it's changed. Um, if it's been released in the UK since things like that, we'll be getting in pretty deep into all of these different movies, even the ones that are particularly crap, but we're going to have some rough weeks, Hank. Oh yeah. We're gonna have some rough ass weeks where it's just like, Oh, all this was terrible. Like next week. It ain't so good. No, next week's going to... Whenever the yeah. next episode comes out. 
Uh, just for reference, by the way, Frederick Wortham wrote um, Seduction of the Innocent in 1954, and it was pretty much used at its core to get these horror comics, you know, EC horror comics banned. And it started a, a horror comics ban in, in the UK. And in 1983, a guy named David Holbrook wrote something um, pretty much with the exact same title and the same mannerisms and incredibly strong language depicting that these movies would, at its core, destroy and tear down the, the UK society and... and uh, Poison the well of the children's minds. Of innocence. Yeah, just just really yeah. fucking crazy <laughs> stuff. But as you were stating yeah. with um collecting the video nasties, I decided I have a you know a collection and a lot of video nasties appear in it, but I want now the greatest 4K fancy transfers of every video nasty. So I two by two as we do this will be purchasing and picking up uh, copies of Video Nasty. So as you tell people uh, information on how to collect and find the originals, I'll let you know what I purchased and if I enjoyed the two copies or not. And, uh, you know, when we get to that, we'll, we'll get to that when we get into the movies. But selflessly uh, plugging other companies is what we do best. Hank is getting ready to buy a lot of garbage. Oh, yeah. He's going to spend a lot of money on a lot of terrible-ass movies. That's sort of the funny part, too, is a lot of it's stuff that I already own that it's like, why did I want to buy this? Oh, but you, can you wait to have that upgraded Blu-ray copy of, uh, of SS Girls? I don't even remember the last time I saw SS Girls. <laughs> well, it's a Bruno Matai film, so... So do you want to start getting into these lists, into the first two on the list? And the first film on the section one list is a man we've been talking about quite a lot tonight, directed this film, um, Joe D'Amato, whose Italian name I am going to butcher. His actual name is Aristocide Massacetti? <laughs> Aristide Masachese, Aristide Massa Massachese, Aristide. Uh, I know his first name is it. Aristide, um, but yeah, we have said many, many times we're not very proficient with Italian names on this program. And unlike Joe Bob Briggs, who has a very great gimmick of saying names incorrectly in a redneck accent, neither of us particularly have an entertaining accent. So we're just going to call him Joe Diamato because that's a lot fucking easier. I mean, that's his director's name. That's what people know him as. No one knows him as his, his Italian name. We've got Luigi Montefiore or Montefiore. We're just going to call him George Eastman, and you're probably going to call him lots and lots of primate names. <laughs> it's funny. I don't know. He's he not that like hairy. He, I All just right, don't think first... he's as hairy as – I mean, maybe years ago I, I just went along with you, but after watching a great 4K – or I think it's 2K restoration, I went ahead. I'll tell you guys what I got here because um, consumerism is awesome. I picked up um, Anthropophagus and Absurd from Severin, and they – most of what I learned tonight too I'm just going to be uh, saying from the Severin disc because it's a lot of awesome interviews um, pretty much with Luigi, uh, George Eastman. And he was the writer for Absurd and Anthropophagus, so he has a great deal of knowledge on it. Um, one of the discs has a really, really cool interview with Joe D'Amato um, previous to his um, death. Most of it is just really, really uh, dense information about who these guys were previously to um, their movies becoming infamous with the Video Nasties list. So if you're really, really interested in knowing uh, you know, about the early life of uh, Mikel Suave or Joe D'Amato, Definitely pick these up. And if you're a purist 
you're really going to hate how clean these are. It makes it really, really bizarre watching something you thought you knew really, really well so cleaned up. It just takes a lot of the shock away for it, uh, for me personally. What company put it out, Hank? Severin. The Blu-ray. Severin. David, David Gregory Severin, uh, Intervision, I think they own it, but yeah, Severin. I love Severin, I love Blue Underground, I love them all. I'm not picky, I like all the boutique labels, they're all great, we love them all because maybe they'll give us a hug one day. And by hug, I mean a box of movies. And as Hank was previously saying, the first film on the list is Absurd, and um, the original Italian title was Rosso... Sanguine? Sanguine? Yeah, it was basically what uh, Blood Red is the the Italian name of it. And this let's is a see how many sequel. names I can pull up for Absurd because it's had so many different releases over the years and different titles because you have that. You have Absurd. You have Horrible. You have uh, In America was Monster Hunter. Uh, in America was also Horrible. Monster Hunter makes um, sense, though. Like, that out of all of the titles, Absurd and Monster Hunter are probably my favorites because there is a monster and there is a Monster Hunter. And so, what know, about this things. one? Zombie 6 Monster Hunter because in, in uh, some territory, it's Zombie 6 now. So, it should have just been called Halloween because it pretty much is Halloween. That's exactly what it is. And uh, Grim Reaper 2. And that the Grim Reaper 2 title is pretty much where it got its note for being the sequel to Anthropophagus, because it's not really a sequel to Anthropophagus at all. It just it has a lot of the same similar people involved, uh, kind of a similar story in places, but none of these are the same characters. But in some places, it was billed as the sequel to Anthropophagus. One of the things about this, uh, why we've started this and, and doing this long-running video nasty format, and it's it's not so much educational just for you, but for us. Because a lot of this I had no idea about, but I thought I did. You know, I, I know this. I, I've done a horror show for years. I watch movies all the time. And some of it's just amazing to to go back and learn where these guys came up with it and why these movies ended up becoming so important. So for all of us, we're just going to learn something new once a month about the video nasties and whichever directors are lucky enough to get on our roster. Well, the... Um the release that was censored by the BBFC was titled Absurd uh, in the UK, and it came out in 1981, and the most sought-after version of it is the pre-certificate um, copy by the label Medusa. So if you can find the Medusa copy of it, let's see what the worth is right now. Uh, let me look this up, because you actually... They're pretty goddamn expensive. One of the cool things about Absurd, and this is a copy that I would really like to get my hands on too, is after the movie was banned, people would take the the banned edited version of the movie and then edit with a VCR over top of it all the excluded banned scenes and would literally knock off rare video nasties. So you could buy a knockoff of a video nasty, which would just be fun to own because it's from the same time period. And it's, it's a legit video nasty, but it's been redubbed and banned over the, the cut version. So that's just fucking hysterical to me. I'd really like to get a hold of one of those. Well, the actual Medusa, proven to be the Medusa release of it, is going for about $130 on, um, on eBay, I guess. Um, the last one that was sold sold for $130, if you can find the exact pre-certificate version of it. And probably... 
Oh, we'll get into the actual um, story and all that of the movie, but I would say the reason this was banned was just overall excessive violence. And the cover might have something to do with it because the Medusa cover has a, a battle axe that's covered in blood on a blue background. It's a very startling image. It's very bold. And that one was probably immediately just grabbed off the shelf um, because of just what it's indicating on the, the cover alone. But also it does have a fair amount of excessive violence in it overall. And, and children are in the film and involved in some of the violence. I don't think it, no kids die in it, but it's just, they're around violence, and that was always a big no-no. And for well, the, one of the, the child, one of the childs is one of the childrens is we'll call them that. Childrens is uh, Katya is you know in a, a big scene of violence, and you know I guess spoilers here if that's going to bother people. She's who cuts off George Eastman's head at the beginning of the or end of the movie rather. So you got a child with an axe killing somebody. That's a big nope. And I'm pretty sure actually if you can find the. I'm. I, I don't think. I'm not real positive about it, but the uh, the wizard release in America called Monster Hunter. That's a pretty rare tape in itself. Not the one that um, Charles Bam put out later when he found a bunch of sleeves in his garage for old wizard video releases. Like the actual 1980s copy of this. And I'm not so sure if it's censored or not, but it's it goes for a fair amount of money too. Not 130 dollars, but you know, up there. You know, for a VHS tape like. 30 to $40 is pretty hefty. One of the things I really, really appreciate about absurd is the partnership of George Eastman and Joe Diamato together, that these guys were really, really interesting characters. Um, and when they worked together, which they did on, on a lot of pictures, Constantly. yeah, for a very long period, they worked together and it just produced or some people would disagree, but I think some really, really great pieces. And, Absurd isn't particularly a, a wonderful right to home and tell everyone how great it is movie, but there are a lot of charming aspects to it. And I think a lot of it comes down to um, Eastman's writing and how Joe D'Amato uh, worked as a director. And it's something that I thought was really interesting hearing George Eastman talk about because um, he seems to be just a very, very stark kind of guy. If he has something to say, he, he says it, uh, whether it might be taken a little bit poorly or not. But he felt that Joe D'Amato never really tried hard enough throughout his career that he would make five or six, you know, kind of shitty movies for all intents and purposes as to where he could have made one really, really terrific art piece. And it, it eventually annoyed him to the extent that he went on uh, his own ways and, you know, became successful with his own endeavors. And then you turn around and you can listen to Joe D'Amato speak for himself about things like this. And he had no passion in making a, a longer statement he had no words he wasn't a guy like we've discussed recently george ramiro that constantly had a theme and constantly had a message he loved being behind the camera he loved working and he could do everything he liked to get he was, would be a gaffer he would be a dp he would do whatever he could to be on set and he had a genuine passion for film that's somewhat lost in this day and age most people always have and this isn't uh, something bad but most people have a statement they want something to be seen or taken from their movie, like The Lighthouse. You know, uh, it, it was such a hard movie to find, and it was put in such strange art house theaters, so a certain breed of people, perhaps, would go out of their way to find it. And that's all good and fine, but there's something about the mad passion a lot of these Italian guys had for just film. Uh, a lot of these guys just genuinely loved motion pictures. Mikel Suave is one of them who came up and got his, you know, first real big break because of Joe Diamato. A lot of guys got their first big break because of Joe Diamato, and that came down to his love 
of cinema. He wouldn't tell anyone no if they were willing to come work for him, and he would put them to work. He would give them jobs. Mikel Suave appears in um, Absurd. He's he's the little James Dean motorcycle guy, and that is Stage Fright. That is um, Delamorte Delamor, you know, one of my favorite Italian directors, although his impact, I think, uh, certainly wasn't as severe as many of his predecessors and guys he worked with, like uh, Argento and um, Lombardo Bava, but regardless, and Joe D'Amato himself, but regardless, I think he's a powerhouse of a director. My whole rambling thing here is more or less just about the the sentiment Joe D'Amato put to uh, his work. He, he really cared about what he was doing, but it's not like you know, some David Lynch amount of detail. He came in, he got the job done, and he loved doing it. So the man, you know, made some 300 pictures in his entire career out of a a pure love of celluloid. He just had a passion that is truly hard to find now, and I think for the most part extinguished with how movies are made and how, you know, the studio environment has become and uh, capitalism itself, fascism down to a certain extent. You just can't find a guy like Joe D'Amato anymore, and that's a fucking shame. Well, overall, though, I mean, Joe D'Amato added something to the Italian horror cycle, but he was a shitty director. He rarely made a movie that was That's what very George Eastman good. said. He said he would have been better as a DP long run, to just be a DP and to not get stuck behind the camera all the time. Um, but still, there's something about him as a shitty director you just kind of got to love. I mean, it's a little bit different than guys like Jess Franco, but I don't know. That's like a neat, uh, you know, picking hairs there. It's a it's a matter of taste, I think, with Diamato and Jess Franco, and you know, comparatively to guys like Fulci and Argento. Well, like I'd say, Absurd is probably one of his better directed films. It does kind of have a plot, and it goes somewhere. I mean, definitely comparing this to Anthropophagus, it's a huge step up from what that film was because he actually has characters and he kind of has a point to what's going on here. It's not just kind of a bunch of randomness and some violence um by far i'd say one of the best things about absurd is its music um i really enjoy the soundtrack to absurd and his handling of the violence was pretty expert for the most part in the film Uh, the special effects aren't great but for the for the time period they were pretty exceptional um along the lines of you know argento or fulci at the time and he did know how to shoot them correctly in this film um, One thing that sets it, Joe apart, mm-hmm. I think, is his use of like actual um, like pig skin and, and anthropophagus. We'll discuss in a little while some of the effects, but a lot of his scenes of violence, especially with penetration of the human body, they would use skin pigs. So, you know, very similar shave to, to humans, you would get what started as a really cool effect and then would obviously be, you know, somebody pulling out guts from you know, a blouse or something tucked into something. So it would go from really impressive to uh, really shoddy kind of quickly. But I don't know, just the idea of these actors out there covered in pig skin, ripping guts out of each other. I, I hate saying it. There's just something so charming about it. And I think overall, like with the story being what it is, which is literally just Halloween, because you have like, father dr loomis running around uh, edward purdom playing the dr loomis character who's a priest slash monster hunter and we never really find out like who george eastman is other than he has like wolverine healing capabilities and he's a psychopath that kills people on super bowl weekend and joe damato trying to appropriate what an american super bowl weekend is is fucking crazy because we're going to a super bowl party and we're gonna eat some pasta 
they're eating pasta at a Super Bowl party, which is a little bizarre for Americans, but whatever. This is something I've noticed a lot in Italian movies and I've grown to love over the years is how they look at our culture. And especially in the 1970s and 80s, you know, most Italian movies took place in New York or whatever was a American well. flag in the background. That's how you fix that. Just it, pen up an American flag. <laughs> it's just the mannerisms and the way that they handle Americans, I think, is really intriguing and allows you to kind of get a glimpse into how uh, the rest of the world saw us or still sees us and it's for the most part is bumbling idiot buffoons. You know, everyone's in three piece suits, eating spaghetti at this football game, drinking really fancy scotch. So all the ideas are there, but you know, a real football match or the real Super Bowl in 1981 was a bunch of blue jeans and TV dinners and nachos and fucking cheap beer and Marlboro red smoke covering the entire room. There was nobody in a three piece suit. It's just not how it went, but you have these, backward bizarre ideas which almost help and en- en- enhance the you know the, the the experience and especially when you take away like a 10th generation copy vhs and you're watching a really great restoration you tend to notice some of these details of how ludicrous it is of they're all eating spaghetti and laughing and watching the super bowl and it's you know again like this was the holiday instead of halloween or christmas like black christmas or something this was what they perceive to be something that would really uh, get American audiences interested into it. You know, it's the Super Bowl, so yeah, of course, it's it, it makes total and, and absolute sense. Uh, that's the least thing that you needed to worry about when it came to making sense with what's going on with Absurd. I do always find it interesting in the European film when they're trying to appropriate an American look that the one thing you can never fix is architecture, like the architecture of the homes, the architecture of the city. It's just like, this is not American architecture. Whatsoever. This is Naples. And the I, same I know thing it. goes for absurd. It's just like, that's not how an American hospital looks or feels even a little bit. That is not an American home. Like what? <laughs> no one would have that, those sort of French doors up. The, but anyway, that's all nitpicking. But um, because absurd, as far as a Joe D'Amato film, is honestly one of his best ones because it is measured, it is handled. He does, he is able to create some suspense. Um, he does time out his uh, um, his violent scenes correctly in this one. It's not just all kind of thrown in at the end, sort of like an anthropophagus. Um, and stuff happens. There's dialogue which doesn't happen in a lot of Joe D'Amato movies. It's usually fucking and violence, and that's about the extent of it. I think to be fair, rating Joe D'Amato movies, uh, once he got specifically into genre films, I think is where a lot of his caliber went a little lower, that his 70s westerns really weren't that bad. And the same can be said for Lucio Fulci. I mean, as a genre fan, and and everyone listening to the show, I presume is a genre fan, you would go out of your way to defend Lucio Fulci, but you compare some of his later work like Cat in the Brain to some of his earlier Westerns. He had a great deal of precision when he was doing studio pictures that, uh, you know, in the Dardando Shachetti era was somewhat lost and his complete style changed. I feel precision wise a little bit for the worse. His editing and his style really just became erratic and, you know, it's after the genre really boomed and that's all people wanted. So a lot of people's style took a little bit of a, a downslide because, you know, they're making seven, eight, nine movies a year for these studios and just pushing them out and pushing them out and pushing them out. And some of them, yes, have become very legendary and beloved to a lot of us. But, you know, even at, at Fulci's death, when he came over to the United States and did that Fangoria convention, he was just like shocked. Like, what the fuck? You guys like this? You know, Joe D'Amato, too, was, you know, uh, toward his death, all of these guys just were blown away that there was such a love 
for their product in the United States. And all of them were just baffled as to why, you know, all of these maestros and guys who we, we really, really love and kiss their ass thought for the most part, a lot of this product that we love so much was, was garbage and some of their very worst work. So it's really awful almost because none of these guys really got to understand why we appreciate things like this and why we see art and a lot of what they would consider shit or bad work, especially guys like Fulci. He hated everything he did. Um, and Joe just wanted to work. He just loved being there and living each day behind a camera, which is something, you know, personally for me, truly admirable. I would love to be a guy like Joe D'Amato. I don't care what the product is. It's just exciting to do it. It's a, it's a love of film. I truly think is, is gone these days. I mean, people have it, but, you can love film until, you know, the day is done, but to go make an indie movie like The Witch, I mean, that was a $3 million budget. Where the fuck are you going to get $3 million unless you just have it sitting around? So these things are very hard. You know, the studios have made going out and being the next Joe D'Amato pretty hard. And just to kind of get into how something was censored, um, the original running time on the uncut version before it uh, – pre-certificate version was like 90 minutes and six seconds, six seconds. And then the, uh, cut version that came out, the, the certificate version was 86 minutes and 24 seconds. So they cut almost four minutes of absurd out that they found objectionable. So I'm assuming, cause I've never seen the cut version of absurd. I'm assuming they just cut out any, like semblance of graphic violence in it, like the drill kill at the beginning it's with the nurse. There. It probably just shows the drill getting close to her head. Yeah, and cut. The bandsaw is completely gone. There's a little um, bit of everything still head in the there. The oven is probably like her head's in the oven and it's over. I actually believe the cut version is referred to as the Italian version. I think that's what was actually released uh, in full in, in Italy is the shorter version. And if you buy the Severin blu-ray that i've talked about a few times tonight you can get both on it and i sat down and checked them both out and you know i this is a hard thing because i I come from even a different generation of video nasty viewers than you are a part of so when i first saw this movie it was a, a very old generation tape and now coming back and watching this really awesome 4k restoration i have a hard time uh really discerning a massive difference between the two because by the first time I saw it, it was such a bad, shoddy quality. I don't even know what I saw. I think I took away um, the drill murder and the bandsaw, the tabletop saw murder, and the end of the movie beheading was you know mostly what I remembered about it. And when you have, again, I've, I've, as I brought this up, such a crystal clear quality to the movie, I, just a, a power is missing. A power has been stripped away and taken from it. And, you know, it's like... We discussed this well, years honestly, ago. Honestly, when you get to a clean copy like that, it all just starts to look so silly. And I don't mean the the special effects like, well, those just look old and crappy. I'm not I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about when it's this clean and you see George Gorilla Eastman, Mr. McGill himself, like stomping around with this angered look on his face the entire movie he has no dialogue and he just randomly shows up and starts killing people the whole thing just seems because you can see kind of the framework around it now you can see the momentum is gone as a film and it's just kind of goofball the whole thing like how did you keep a straight face during any of this because it just seems so kind of it, it, and honestly like it, it's almost wistful to a simpler time to me it's just like oh oh well, yeah i mean Look at them all having fun. 
Well, this shows our age with Death by DVD, but we discussed this years ago when, you know, big restorations started coming out. Uh, Aliens came out on a really nice, shiny restoration, and you had sat down and watched it, and most of the fun is stripped away because you can tell now it's only six guys in, in rubber gorilla suits playing these aliens in the background where you're supposed to be believing it's a hive, and it's thousands and millions of them, and they're really fucked. That makes it incredibly not scary, and it's not that Aliens is very scary in the first place. It's more of an action-paced sort of thing. So you strip that level, that fourth wall away, it, it really almost demeans the picture a little bit, and a lot of the charm from Video Nasties was finding them and was finding really old copies and trying to figure out. You know, I would sit around with my little brother in the basement for hours, you know, like, I wonder how old this... I think the first one we got was Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer on VHS. And, you know, how old is this copy? Where did it come from? How many generations uh, has this gone through? Is this a first gen? And, of course, you know, you can't figure out those things. That was the excitement about it. And now you get it in the mail and you pop it in and you watch it. As a new viewer, you know, if you're just now coming into this and you're exploring this or, or learning new things about horror, I feel a lot of what, you know, and it's not like gatekeeping, what we went through, what the, the people in England, what teenagers in the 80s had to go through. But what made some of this so expressly fun is gone now. And, you know, like uh, there's a couple streaming channels that have old VHS rips or, or with intent play like VHS rips and, you know, let you have some of that fun. But with technology and how the future is, you find yourself so annoyed watching something old that there's just no middle ground. Uh, it's You've gotten to a point with streaming and technology that the old things aren't fun anymore, and when you try to have fun with the old things by restoring them, it's equally not fun because they're restored and you're just kind of left remembering the good old days. And that really sucks. I mean, for all intents and purposes, genre-specific film is pretty much dead if you're not going into uh, some sort of superhero thing. And guys like Joe D'Amato, movies like Absurd, that genre is not here anymore. You know, when this video boom happened and this ban happened and it made people want these and crave these and you could pump these out and you could make things like Absurd and, and New York Ripper and crazy over-the-top movies, you could get away with it. Now you can do it, yeah, sure, but who's going to watch it? Who's going to demand it? Who's going to ban it? It's part of culture now. It's part of who we are and moving past it you kind of have to accept the genre is gone. It's, it's just not there. It's just not the way, I mean, it's there. It's just not as it was. Well, as far as absurd as a film, um, and as being a Halloween ripoff, it's like a shittier version of Halloween, but I will give it this. It has payoff and Halloween does not have payoff. It has actual murder payoff in this film. So it, it does get some excitement on that level of actually having some, some gory death, something happened other than a strangulation or a lot of build to nothing because it does build and you do get, you get like a payoff at the end. It's definitely a ripoff of Halloween one and two. And that's something I recently listened to George Eastman even talk about that. It's not so much a matter of plagiarism, but the boom hit, uh, certain things were demanded a market was available. So you, you've seen things, you recognize things that had a pattern and was successful. And that's pretty much where the idea of absurd came from. They knew what to do from anthropophagus. They had a lot of ideas uh, left over from that and they borrowed, they took things, they made their, you know, Italian version, which 
has become pretty much beloved is Italian knockoffs of, you know, whatever. There's thousands of Alien and Aliens knockoffs. There's Terminator. Mad Max is, I think, the most beloved out of all the genres of Italian knockoffs. I mean, personally, I really like a good, nice, beefy Mad Max knockoff. But the slasher genre really, beyond Giallo, was pretty exciting when you find really, really cool uh, knockoffs of American slashers through not just the Video Nasties list, but the catacombs of Italian directors and the knockoff genre itself. And just to hit everyone with way too much information about all of this. Um, I will like kind of read a little sections out of this book called the art of the nasty by Nigel Wingrove and Mark, uh, Mark Morris. And it kind of will give you a little bit more of a, fr- like a framework. I think I've said that about 10 times today, but of kind of what around these movies were problems and how they've morphed over the years, like what's banned, what's not banned. But uh, let's just read the little section about Absurd here. The sequel to Anthropophagus, The Beast, Absurd received an uncut video release around the same time it had been granted an 18 certificate with two minutes and 32 seconds of cuts for a theatrical exhibition. It was soon reshoot on video with cuts, although it had never been granted a video classification certificate. In common with Medusa's Madhouse, the uncut version carries a printed sticker on the side of the cassette. The cut version does not have the sticker on the side, but has a small hologram in its place. So, that I mean, there's even more information on kind of how big these movies were and how important all these little details of what specific videotape you had and how important that was when you were, like, basically black market trafficking these films. And it's ridiculous to even have to give a reference that these were being black market trafficked. People were treated the same as heroin dealers and cocaine dealers over things like absurd, which is, to make a pun, fucking absurd. There's nothing, uh, you know, ridiculous about censorship. I don't know. I'm going to go back into a censorship rant, so I'm going to avoid it. (laughs) Light a cigarette. So let's, uh, do you just want to move on to the... Second film, which is Anthropophagus. I mean, they're out of order because of alphabetical order, but Anthropophagus did come first in 1980. And it's supposedly the prequel to Absurd, even though they have nothing to do with each other other than the star of the film, basically. I even recently, a week ago or so, was talking to somebody about what we were getting ready to do with Death by DVD and brought that up of, you know, well, it's the prequel. And again, that's sort of the legacy that you get with a lot of the Video Nasties movies. And a lot of what you learn and, and hear over the years is word of mouth. You know, you know, most of the time when you get into something like horror and weird cinema, it's because somebody else got you into it. So you're being taught by somebody and you'll learn something. And, you know, we're coming back now and, and both of us together working on this and learning the material or, or learning completely new things. And the more and more I learn, I guess the more it just completely saddens me that I don't know, things that are judged so easily, things that are given no time, things that are just, you know, thrown away as a 42nd Street movie or, for lack of better words, pornography uh, by some bureau that didn't even bother to watch it, by somebody that didn't even have the balls to watch it. it. It's just heartbreaking because, you know, even like we discussed with Snuff, most of these movies aren't even worth the caliber that people gave them the merit for by saying, this is going to kill people. I don't even see how. I mean, it, but and this was one of them that doesn't deserve as much fervor as it created because it is like it's a 
pretty crap fucking movie overall. But you learn something new throughout all of this, and you remember different things, and a, a lot of it's going back down memory lane, and and you know recalling the first time that I saw some of these movies, and you know this has stirred a new love in me and made me realize how much I appreciate and enjoy Joe D'Amato movies. And definitely like the last decade of my life has not, you know, I've avoided a lot of it. I've avoided guys like Jess Franco, Sean Roland. I've never been really, really deeply into uh, the more erotic uh, porn horror. And Joe D'Amato did a lot of hardcore um, Jean Roland. I guess you could like fascination is got a lot of nudity in it, but it's not so much. Uh, it's erotic, but not really a porn. But, you know, you're soft nitpicking. Core. Yeah, softcore, hardcore. These guys went through pretty much everything. And a lot of them are, are fun, great movies and, you know, feature guys like George Eastman. And, like, we're getting into one that has Tissa Farrow in it, who is, you know, beloved in the Italian subgenre. But, you, I don't know, you just end up missing things because you're willing to, you know, say, oh, it's Joe D'Amato, he's shit, and it's whatever. I've seen Absurd and... It would have been better, blah, blah, blah. And you end up missing just, I don't know, fun stuff. I'm rambling about why I haven't seen enough Joe D'Amato movies. Anthropophagus, <laughs> the beast. You're, you're, you're not missing much with most Joe D'Amato movies. I will say that right now. I am not a huge Joe D'Amato fan. But um, the cut version of Anthropophagus, the beast, came out in, I guess, 1980 in England. And um, it has many different titles. Because in America, it was released, edited as The Grim Reaper. It was also The Savage Island, Zombies Rage, Man Eater, Man Beast. So it has so many erroneously different titles. And um, the most sought after copy of it is the VFP labeled version. Um, and that is going for about $230. So big money on that one. And this one is mostly objected to the box art of George Eastman's um, horribly made up face. People objected to that. They also objected to two scenes in this film very specifically. Um, most of which had to do with the scene where the anthropophagus or basically cannibal. He pulls a rabbit out of his hat. Um, yeah. He pulls a skinned rabbit from a supposed pregnant woman's belly, and it's supposed to imitate a fetus. It has a fetal eating scene in it, and that's this is the, one of the video nasties that caused a lot fetal of eating? bullshit. It's fetal eating good for this scene because it's fucking sick. It's the most sick thing ever. He eats a woman's fetus right out of her stomach, and the special effect is not very convincing. Uh, most of the special effects in this film are not very convincing. And not only that, the whole thing plays like a travel log. It's so much more about couples vacationing on a Greek island than it has anything to do with horror or anything else. I mean, the story is razor thin of George Eastman is in a sh like a shipwreck and him and his wife are on a rowboat marooned and he kills her and eats her. And now he is some sort of hideous beast with like Play-Doh all over his face. I don't understand what happened to his face. They never explain that. As a teenager, I always thought that the two kids, or the kid from um, Absurd and the nurse, were the, the woman and the child on the boat. And that's how it turned out to be a prequel. And so, you know, you see things and you forget about it over the years, and you make these connections of how legendary all these things are and elaborate they are. Then you sit down and rewatch them on a shiny 2K transfer, and it's like, wait a minute, this is kind of horse shit. 
I think it's like, uh, you know, he was out to sea for so long that his face got, you know, ridiculously burned. It's like alocasia and, you know, this like What really, happened to his hair? It, it all got burned. Maybe he ate it. You know, I think uh, <laughs> you're going with this idea that he's been marooned and shipwrecked and is weathered and is turned all leathery and is affected by the sea. And it looks more like some Elmer's glue and, uh, you know, pepper has been blown in George Eastman's face. The... Uh, the effects for the movie, I can't remember the the guy that did it. He worked for, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 movies, maybe even more with uh, Joe D'Amato. And uh, they worked on Absurd, most of the movies that they went and filmed. And um, what was it the Galapagos Islands? They went in, I don't know, the Caribbean. They went and filmed out in the Caribbean. It was did. in some Greek islands. No, it's the Greek. Well, no, Greek they, these were the Greek islands. But after this, they went and did that Caribbean series. Joe D'Amato and George Eastman did a bunch of movies they filmed out in the Caribbean. Are you talking about like Erotic Nights of the Living Dead? Yeah, all that stuff. They filmed like four or five movies out there it was the Galapagos or the Caribbean or something like that. Um, the same around time that Porno Holocaust was made. I think that was, I mean, uh, Joe Diamato is attributed to that, but I think that was leftover stuff from Erotic Nights of the Living Dead that Jess Franco edited together. No, 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 no. Um, Bruno Matai. Bruno Matai. Okay, yeah, I knew it was somebody else. Uh, you know, fairly, fairly recognizable. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't. I forgot what I was going <laughs> off about. Well, I mean, like the big thing with Anthropophagus, this one is like you hear there are bands named Anthropophagus. A lot of people use um, artwork from this film in different ways, and it's a very like necrophagia film. But overall, it's just it's so poorly made because it's just people walking around like an abandoned city while terrible music plays. Don't just you think that's kind of what makes it? You know, so uh, uh, significant, so important, though. I mean, because I remember getting people together to watch this movie, and it's one of those hard-hitting— It doesn't pay off. I just don't think it pays off. I mean, I think that's a big legacy with the Video Nasties, and one of the things that really makes this uh, more of a fun show than anything else is we can talk these movies up and tell you about the gore and the special effects and and everything else involved with them or the lack thereof when it comes to my part, but— you sit down and you watch these movies after you hunt them down and you hear that they're banned and they caused all of this panic and this is what it is. It truly is 90 minutes of people stumbling around this island with uh, you know some cut-ins of uh, incredible gore, but for the most part, the, the most legendary scene of Eastman eating his own guts, it's what, two, three seconds? It's hardly anything. Yeah, you probably get a few, maybe five full seconds of him eating his guts, maybe 20 seconds of the fetus eating... There's like two initial murders at the beginning and then nothing for like an hour. And then eventually we start, you know, having the murders again. But most of them are trying to be like the the, uh, decapitation in this film is terrible. The fake head is terrible. It looks like a mannequin head. Um, The only thing that really works is George Eastman's guts spilling out and then him trying to consume himself which is well that's a nice little cherry on top that's the best scene of the film and it has to be the last scene of the film apparently and just have nothing really interesting and because the characters are not engaging whatsoever they're all very wooden their, their dialogue is very stilted and terrible everything is really poorly dubbed and no one really has any motivation to do anything they're just being chased by this character on a deserted island for an hour of nothing You've got Zora Karova's character, which she's kind of fun. I mean, uh, audience members might remember her from Cannibal Ferox. She plays the psychic, and I think that's one of the 
I don't know, more sticky things about the movie. Of course, there's a psychic, and she's predicting that all these bad things are going to happen. But it's so dinner theater. Uh, it, she kind of, Zora kind of carries, I think, for me, most of the movie, and is not, you know, attempting to insult somebody that's beloved, but Tisa Farrow isn't incredibly strong. She doesn't... Or talented. Yeah, um, and it's not down to, like, oh, Mia's definitely better, because they are related. Uh, this is the sister of Mia Farrow. I think she's in Manhattan. I think Tisa is, is very briefly in Manhattan for a couple scenes. She uh, was mostly a bartender, a taxi driver, and uh, kind of like her character in the movie would vacation and film Italian horror movies. I believe in this situation she was involved romantically with Joe D'Amato's brother and wanted to just be around him uh, as much as she could, and Joe had both of his brothers and his wife working uh, for him. And I think they were gaffers or something necessary. There's always something that you can put family to work to on a film set, and she's just so fucking boring. She's supposed to be your heroine, and you're watching her throughout the entire movie, and... Yeah, I guess it's a little chauvinistic to bring up, but I'm watching an early 80s Italian gore movie and my heroine is wearing a baseball shirt, the a way oversized baseball shirt the entire time. You've lacked all the perverse sexuality that, you know, you kind of need and want with something of this caliber. And then when you get your greasy sexuality, it's something like the um the the the, the rabbit being pulled from the hat scene that you, you don't get any brakes pumping whatsoever. So this is one of those, like, quick-paced ideas. Um, you can see how much, like, Joe D'Amato was known to just go out and shoot more than he ever needed to edit and put things together. So most of his work was B-roll and then George Eastman's writing. And apparently this had been, uh, like, Joe D'Amato had written an idea for the, for the movie, written a script, and Eastman had to sit down and, and go over it and, and fix some things. So comparing to what Joe D'Amato wrote to what we have uh, by George Eastman. I'm really interested to, to know how boring the original movie was. Well, I mean, this is very obviously a cash-in on horror films at the time that they were starting to get more graphic. And now, this is a cannibal that's genre pretty much thing. What Joe D'Amato was trying to accomplish with this film is he had kind of an idea, a premise, and hey, we'll have a cannibal. and we'll You know what he was working on when he died? Say what? Do you know what he was working on when he died? Probably another goddamn Anthropophagus film. A showgirls knockoff called Showgirl. Oh, lovely. I mean, but that's just <laughs> what he was that, you know, it, it's even, a, he, he passed away of a heart attack, I believe, in 1999. So years after Paul Verhoeven did Showgirls, he's still out there. You're like, ah, nope. Fuck it. Vegas and titties. I'm going to make a knockoff of it. He didn't care what the caliber was. And that's something I really... He was a capitalist. That's what Joe D'Amato was. <laughs> well, even beyond that, he he would even admit he wasn't a good businessman and he wasn't an artist. He truly was a worker out of anything. He he wanted to go out and shoot and be behind the camera in, in some way. It didn't matter how, if he was, what he was doing. As long as he was on set and working, he was just a happy man. And that's really, like, because of him... So many people that we really, really uh, enjoy in the genre really got a chance to grow. I mean, Dario Argento can take as much credit for Mikel Suave as he wants to, but it was Joe Diamato that produced Stage Fright. It was Joe that brought him in it, for something like absurd. George Eastman wrote Stage Fright too, didn't he? Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. people that he was introduced to because of Joe. So he might not have been a great director, and by no means did anything he make change. I mean, I'm sure it changed plenty of people's rights uh, lives. And it's ridiculous to say it didn't, because Joe D'Amato has changed, I think, all of our lives. But nobody, I think, sat down and you know looked at Absurd and went, 
well, this is this is my Godfather. This is this is it. People look at Joe D'Amato and his work and how much he managed to produce and how much he loved cinema and and the, the rights of celluloid. And that, I think, is what influences and inspires people is this guy went out there every single fucking day, whether he it was good, bad, ugly, porn, hardcore, whatever. And he shot it and he did it and he loved it. And that's just it's not around anymore. What does amaze me is the cultural impact of what Anthropophagus did, because like I was saying before, and it, it showed up so much in culture over the years of just different references to this film specifically. I'll like more than anything in artwork that people love to draw the beast. People make dolls of uh, the Anthropophagus. Colin Rogers, things. man. I, you can like, find that on the Jason Severn Voorhees website. Or Freddy. This is very much just a nothing character, but people have seemed to gravitate towards him as some sort of icon. Have of you seen, nasties. you've seen the doll that they have I've on, seen it. Yeah. yeah. That's by Colin Rogers, man. I love that guy's uh, art. He did this amazing piece when uh, Killjoy, who had several songs about anthropophagus and it was one of his favorite movies. Killjoy Desaad, um, the wonderful Frank Pucci jr. From necrophagia passed away a couple years ago. He did a wonderful Colin Rogers did a wonderful piece for him and has done some of the most amazing artwork I think I've seen for Joe Diamato stuff, but he did that doll for Severin and that I've, I've been meaning to buy that thing. It's adorable. And that's what's so like kind of crazy about it is how people gravitated towards this particularly bland horror film. But I think this one, as far as as video nasties goes, this one had a pedigree of this is the most insane rough thing you're going to watch in a horror film. And it really comes down to that fetus scene and the guts eating scene. And the fact that people really focus on it like it being like this really amazing film and just to see how kind of boring it is overall and just how much of it is just footage of the location and not much story or anything else going on do we even need the um the flashback to explain how george eastman became who he is who cares he's a fucking monster going around eating people that's all you really need to know because the story that the the background story is it's not entertaining it's not interesting it doesn't provide new revelations to the character it's a guy who went nuts and ate his wife and now he's eating more people and that's like 7 8 minutes of scream time explaining who he is who gives a shit well, we talk about censorship and people being offended by art and people you know thinking it's going to poison the well and and kill their children and make society completely awful and broken but George Eastman is the first to say he's not proud of this movie. I think he uses the words, I'm ashamed. And it's not because of his relationships with Joe or the relationships he formed and made with these people or working on it. It's because he grew up, he changed as a person, and this is a very explicit and uh, you know vile horror film for its time and some of the things that it shows. It's not that it should be banned. It's not that it should be taken away. You have the writer and the star of the movie willing to say... I'm a little ashamed. I wish I hadn't have done this. You know, I was younger. I, I did what I did. We made a movie. He's not telling you to not see it. He's amazed. Guys like George Eastman are literally shocked and amazed when they find out that dumb Americans like us spend two hours recording podcasts and radio shows and writing reviews and books and magazines about these subjects because to them – it was literally a little feeling of shame, like, God, I ripped a, a rabbit out of a woman and it was supposed to be a, a child from her uterus, then I ate it. These guys aren't going to sleep at night going, fuck yeah, I can't believe I did that. When they learn and find out that there are people that, 
even consider it art or are even willing to dissect it and talk about how it was filmed, it, it gives a second life um, to these people. And it gives a second life to these films and these pieces of art that have been, for the most part... I think that's what really speaks to people, though, is because as we brought it up several times, is the fetus eating scene. And I think that is just the one thing that, like, this has crossed the line oh, yeah. of decency in film. And it's the one thing that has, like, affected people. And it is a bit of a short sequence, but I think that can also say something to culture and cultural in general, because what offended people with the evil dead? Say what? What offended people the most with the evil dead? It was that tree rape. I mean, people, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always down to something that you can cover up with a notion of perversity. It's something that you can make people feel bad for. It's almost that Catholic guilt syndrome. You know, well, this is uh, a fetus being torn from a woman's body, so it's going to influence people to do it because they're so stupid and lewd they don't have any thoughts for themselves, which is just a peculiar way to even think of the citizens of your country that you uh, should think of as brethren. It doesn't matter if somebody was German and moved to England. They're English at this point, so it's not a matter of borders or walls or getting rid of things. It literally was a matter of, we don't want you to see this because we want you to not see other things. So we get rid of this. You won't worry when we start censoring your news, your television, your internet, whatever, you're not going to think about it. And well, like, as I was saying before, like with something like the pro-life movement, a lot of pro, I'm not saying this is all people. I'm not taking sides on this issue, but a lot of pro-life people are also pro death penalty. Just the fact that it's a small child or a helpless child, even still in the womb, that is involved absolutely goes towards censorship. It's like the most appalling thing. You're like, So you, that's – I mean that's our view of children in this world, that if anything happens to them, even if it's fake, we can't even stand that. So I think that's kind of speaks to just part of the cultural impact because it did break that barrier of – uh, what some people can see uh, concede as decency is just it's really now you've gone beyond the pale with this one you affected an unborn child and then now we're in a complete fervor over it well changing our direction a little bit but staying on the the same path let's talk about a serbian film a serbian film is a movie that certainly would have been a video nasty and one reason it couldn't be in this day and age is god damn it, it's so clean it's so I, shiny it, i don't I'm not sure the status in england right now i don't know if it's banned or not in um the uk well it's the serbian purported film. most banned you know offensive movie of all time and when it came out both you and i scrambled to find copies of it and to see it and it's one of those things i remember like a, a christmas that was a great christmas you, know, you never forget i remember getting to the end of that movie and just being crushed this is the way of the future. This is the most offensive, raw. Uh, you've never seen anything like this since the video nasties. No, I've never been disappointed as much as like when I finished all the video Just nasties. Just like a lot of video nasties. Uh, you know, all you did for for me as an audience member is you attempted to shock me as much as possible by using some of these things like uh, pro-life ideas and, and manipulating them. And you'll always have somebody saying, well, you don't know what it's like in Serbia. It's very hard and censorship. No, I I'm, I'm keen on that and I understand it and I get where you're coming from. 
But there is a time and a place for violence, and there's a time and a place for being shocking. And when you're violent and shocking for the uh, sake of only being violent and shocking, you've not done anything. Somebody like Joe D'Amato, who says, straightforward, I'm not an artist, I'm going out there and I'm shooting and making movies, he even had a time and a place for being shocking. Something like this scene where the the fetus is ripped out and eaten, it had a time and a place in an incredibly uh, awfully paced movie that was beyond slow and is a dread and a fight to get through. It's not constant. It's not there just to disturb you. It's got some form of entertainment value. It has some form of masking for the reasons it's in the movie. It's not just fucking your kid because that's what's shocking. He's fucking his son. Isn't that crazy? He's up uh, crazy. And you know what would have actually made that more shocking in the film is if the rest of the story backed up that scene in like a supportive way. I mean, that sounds weird, but what I mean is if the rest of the film, the tone of the film, before you get to that point, the story is still nothing. There's no story in a Serbian film. It just, it's a series of much like anthropophagus. It's a series of shocking scenes and like, just like the fetus eating in anthropophagus, it's not effective because you just, well, here you go. Here's a big plate of tripe. Eat that. It's like, well, you didn't build me up to anything. You just like, you just threw out like the most disgusting thing you could. And you didn't like, you didn't tease it the right way. You didn't like emphasize anything the right way. You literally just like pulled your dick out in my face and said, well, what do you think of that? And I'm like, it's a fucking dick. I don't know what's supposed to be shocking. About I've seen it. my own. And, thanks. <laughs> and that's like the, my problem with anthropophagus as a whole is just the buildup just isn't there. Even the things that are supposed to be shocking aren't shocking because you have dragged this on so long and nothing has been interesting much like a Serbian film. None of this, like the character in a Serbian film is not interesting. The predicament he is in is not interesting. It just is to further get to scenes of graphicness and not really having a supporting story to build up that graphicness to make it shocking. It's just like, all right, it's shocking. So what? I think the difference between the two is somebody has the integrity to come out and say, uh, I'm just doing this because it's what was not even asked of me. Like, Anthropophagus was written and put together pretty much by Joe D'Amato and George Eastman. So these guys brainstormed, they came up with this product, and that's how they judged it. It wasn't diehards or fanatics or people that were attempting to... Uh, further the genre or make something progressive for the genre, they were making a product. And then when you sit down with a Serbian film, the way it's purported and the way people talk about it is like it's the fucking evil dead. You know, people talk about this movie like it changed the world and like it broke barriers. And I've heard this constantly. If Chaz Ballin was still alive, man, he would have loved that movie. Fuck you. He would have hated it. Fuck <laughs> off, man. Did you not see fucking Aftermath, that Nacho Saturday movie? He hated that shit, and this is in the exact same vein. You've managed to make a good movie, and this is something I've never said about a Serbian film. It shot really it's well. It's well made. Yeah. Great movie for that purpose. I can give it a great review. Looks great. It's sleek. It's clean. It's edited fantastically. So what about all of this is is helpful to the nature of what you're trying to present to me? You just gave me like a Maserati that fucks its own kid, essentially. Uh, all right. That didn't help when you are doing, you know, and it's just, it comes down to even the tone of these 10th generation videotapes. There is a look. There is a feel. There is a soul to, you know, some of these awful things that you can show on screen. And something like Anthropophagus 
despite being incredibly boring, uh, almost having nothing that would allure you and, and bring you in as an audience member. When it presents its its despicable uh, acts of violence, it depicts them at least in a manner that is for uh, entertainment purposes. When you have something like a Serbian film, all you are giving me is uh, an attempt to shock m- me. You're not giving me anything outside of, I just want you to think this is fucked up. And it's the same thing as like when you would sit down and go to Agrish or Rotten.com or uh, what was a ham and cheese.com or something like that. And it was just live gore. It was uh, war footage, uh, Chechen footage, just awful atrocities. All you were doing with that was shocking yourself to feel something different. When you sat down as a teenager and you looked at that gore and you checked those websites out, it was just to bring something different from your mundane existence. So when you try and do that with a piece of art or even a product like Joe D'Amato made, he made products instead of art pieces, you fail to deliver something to the audience because all you've tried to do is pretty much piss on me instead of at least give me something Anthropophagus and Absurd gave me something. They at least gave me, whether it be uh, a somewhat boring and stupid story, it was something. It wasn't newborn porn. See, I, I would agree with you with Absurd, but I wouldn't agree with you with Anthropophagus because I equate Anthropophagus to something like a Serbian film. Not to say it's as shocking, or, but I, I just think it, it's kind of in the same vein. It's violence is just, explicit. We're just trying to get to these scenes that are going to shock you and all this supporting material just isn't there for me to be shocked. I just don't care. I'm like, you've dragged this out long enough. And now this is the scene. Oh, this is the scene everybody objected to. Okay. With the difference with the evil dead is just the sheer kinetic energy of evil dead is what makes that movie impressive. That's what makes the movie feel frightening at times because the special effects in the evil dead are goddamn terrible, but just the way he shot them the energy that's behind the film, that's what supports everything that's going on. Because if you're just there for gore, you're going to get you're gonna be sorely disappointed with Evil Dead because the gore is not that impressive at all. But the energy behind the film, the filmmaking skills, and Evil Dead barely has a story, but just the way that he engaged, like Sam Raimi engaged his audience with his camera work is what makes that interesting. And there's no camera work in the Anthropophagus to even engage in. There's nothing to engage with. It's just these scenes. And I think that's also part of the problem with um, why it was banned in the UK at the time was just because it didn't have that story to support it. So it just felt like you're watching a snuff film. Oh, okay, we're just watching scenes of death because there's sure as fuck not a story to engage with for people to watch this, they're just watching it for these scenes of violence. And I think that's really why it was targeted so heavily at the time. What I think is humorous is a lot of the movies that they actually thought were real snuff films were much more lucid than this and were much more cinematically paced. Like cannibal Holocaust is something that constantly people will bring up as being real or having much more real violence than it does uh, inside of it. And uh, you know, even I'll bring this up. A friend of the show, Manny Serrano, his wife, Lynn, she will not watch Cannibal Holocaust. She's never seen it. And I feel a lot of it is uh, down to the rumors about some of the graphic nature of the movie. And yeah, it's awful, man. I mean, Cannibal Holocaust is a real shock to you unless you're into that sort of stuff. And then that's alarming and probably problematic to your family and your life. And I hope you don't unpets. But it's not like they went out there 
making this movie with the intent of causing this harm and causing this destruction. Some of these things happened. Um, they're, they're heinous acts and they should completely, you know, be acknowledged as such, but it's not snuff. It's not, it's, it's just, nothing's believable. Like something like cannibal Holocaust, despite how shocking it is. And, and when I saw it for the first time as a teenager, I remember thinking, I don't get it. I don't get why this changed the world because out of all, I mean, and there's like anthropophagus. There are movies that I feel just have so much more nothing that got judged more than something. And you've got something like Cannibal Holocaust, something like anthropophagus for the most part. Yes, they're incredibly vile and their nature is uh, negative. The story that's being told obviously isn't some heroic positive, everybody's going to be happy at the end of the day sort of thing. But it's it's just clear, you know, it just seems so evident and so real, you know, this is a production, this is a piece, like you were saying, people don't speak this way, people don't act this way, there's not fucking color correction in a snuff film, there's not gonna be any sort of, Robert you know, Kerman linear editing. is a terrible actor, <laughs> you should have been like, <laughs> the one thing that made Cannibal Holocaust, though, effective is the story around it is what made it so much more effective. And that idea of the found footage and when like, and so it seemed a little more lascivious because that maybe that footage is real. Maybe it isn't real. I mean, I mean, they had to like, uh, uh, the Adato had to go to court over that and bring his actors out and say, look, see, they're still alive. A lot of that came down to him though, too. I mean, they filmed the movie and he paid them to fuck off and to lay low. Oh, he did the Blair Witch thing. Yeah. Like, let's create a controversy behind this. He fucked himself on that. I mean, God, (laughs) even bringing that up, there's an old video. I'm sure all of you guys can find on YouTube of Killjoy and Phil Anselmo and uh, Phil's wife at the time. I believe her name was Opal enthroned and they were all in necrophagia at the same time together. And, uh, Phil's fucked up out of his mind. Killjoy's completely shit-faced, wasted, and they're it's on. It's a video cassette interview of them talking about how the Blair Witch Project, and, you know, and it is like 1999, 2000, so it's around that time period of how Blair Witch ripped off Cannibal Holocaust and Holocaust did it first. And there are a lot of aspects of that that I think is true, but I have um, I have a lot of love for the Blair Witch Project for uh, ripping off Cannibal Holocaust pretty much. So it's kind of funny. You can look back and see people's attitudes change. And a lot of this badge of honor, kind of sacred nature of seeing a video nasty. And back in the day, it really was something like that, that you would be able, you know, if you could say you've seen all these movies and talk about them, you would get a little bit more respect on the playing field with the other guys on the horror forum that you were staying up till 2am talking to. Like it mattered. Are you ready for um, too much information about video nasties? Too much information. Um, Let's see. Released uncut by VFP, clips were featured on the TV news with self-imposed cuts to remove some excessive gore. The fetus eating was replaced by a replay of the mother's murder and and intestine eating finale was replaced by flashbacks to earlier scenes. The cover art was also toned down, obscuring the beast's face. So when even when they released it with a certificate, they had to change the box because the box was the uh, box artwork was what another thing they found objectionable of his Play-Doh face. I, I, I don't personally get it, but I do find Anthropophagus like very interesting as a cultural note more than anything, how so many people got behind this, albeit terrible film, really kind of championed it into being this 
great kind of piece of art. Like you ain't seen shit till you see an anthropophagus and then you watch it and go, well, I don't think I ever want to see shit then because this is, this is kind of bad. That's how it is with a lot of things though. I mean, when you first really get an interest in underground or uh, shocking horror movies, people tell you, you know, you've not seen anything until you've seen last house on dead end street. You don't know what offensive and raw and obscene is until you've seen Last House on Dead End Street. And I was one of these many people. I remember even being told by you how awful and and just shocking this movie was. And then you sit down and you watch it. Yeah, there there is. And just like Anthropophagus, just like a Serbian film, there are incredibly shocking things in the movie. But you, the joy out of all of this is the expectation that you build up when you're told about it. When somebody tells you about this and you spend all your time finding it and you finally have almost this, like, ceremony. You know, you, you, you get ready and you, you plan to watch this. You make a night out of it, even being disappointed, even not finding, you know, uh, the coherency in the story or the excitement that necessary, like with most of the stuff that's shown in Anthropophagus. There's just still a, a joy in experiencing it that... You can't take away, and a lot of it is the shock. Well, the big difference, I would say, with Last House on Dead End Street more than anything is speed and the amphetamines everyone was on because that movie is so reptile in nature. It's just so anti-human in a way, and it has a lot to do with just the performances and just the coldness, how everything is filmed in that movie, how, like, almost like war footage it is and just the anger behind a lot of the acting. Um, I think, and Roger Watkins even admitted to such that they were on so much copious amounts of speed at the time. And you really do feel it. You really do feel this anger coming out of the film as it's going on. That's really what makes that one um, particularly um, aggressive to me personally is just that level of anger that's coming through it. And, you don't get that in a lot of video nasties, to be honest, because a lot of these movies were just European exploitation films. Let's throw a Nazi in it and we'll have a thing. That's I mean, that's really what most people are doing. Nazi exploitation's big. Let's make a Nazi film. And you end up with all these Elsa, She Wolf of the SS ripoffs, which are all mostly bad. You, too, also end up having a lot of art movies that are thrown into this mix with things like Possession. Uh, you'll go through this video and ask these lists, and some of these we'll have to give special attention to, namely things like Possession, because they don't fit. They don't deserve to be on this list, and this is where you even get a little bit more offended that genuine pieces of art were tossed into this mix of things that people consider to be absolute garbage. But who are these people? And that takes us back to the beginning of the show and what the video nasties are. And as I've said with, you know, this entire show, this is all a learning process. You know, you and I and the audience together are learning new things about truly horror history. And I think one of the, the important things and big things, even with Death by DVD, is you and I are cinephiles. And out of that, history is a really important thing to us. And you have to recognize and Talk about it. You can't let these things go unheard of or, or unspoken of. And, you know, you make a reference very blasé to something like, oh, this is a video nasty. And you assume everybody knows what that is. And when it comes down to the facts, I don't think most people know what really happened and how detrimental the video nasties and the movement that happened with um, Parliament really was, not just to art, but to filmmakers, to writers, to everyone 
that that had some thought. And you have a lot of comparable things to like um, the Marquis de Sade. Somebody that you know, 120 Days of Sodomy was you know his most infamous story. You've got the the movie version of that, Salo, which uh, is going to eventually appear on this list and have uh, has a lot of mysticism and, and strange things about it. But comparing, you know, it's like apples and oranges. Like the literary movement is is equally as important. But you have somebody like the Marquis de Sade who. Uh, in nature was a pretty violent, despicable person. And most of the things he was writing about were things that, you know, he was trying to do. And like Napoleon censored him, he banned him and had him put in an asylum for the rest of his life. And you look at something like this, a, a mentally disturbed man who was essentially writing fan fictions about how he wants to fuck children's skulls. Was he fucking kids though? Was he, did you need to censor it? And you have to find this weird path. You know, some things will offend you. Some things will really bother you. There are lines that everyone has that can't be, you know, drawn and passed. And my my meaning of referencing the Marquis de Sade is, uh, you know, coming up with that line of, you know, as I mentioned, he was a, a pretty abhorrent person, but did he deserve censorship? Now, there's a lot of sides to that of yes and to no, but at the same time, you're taking something that is now celebrated as this uh, rated X obscene piece of censored history. And was it really worth censoring at all? Was it really worth even delivering this attention to? Because by banning it, by making it so uh, obscene, by telling people it's so obscene, you just made people want to go out of their way to find it. So you defeated your own purpose by doing what you were doing. And I just don't understand to speak the to that. What, what I do find interesting is the same thing kind of happened in the video nasty area because or era, because the UK has one of the greatest horror fan bases at this point. Like, there's so many huge Yeah, hey, what's fans. up, UK listeners? Because most of our audience is from the UK. At this point, yes. And they're very much interested in film, horror films specifically. And it really grew just because they created this, this whole movement, this underground movement of wanting to watch cinema that supposedly was too rough for anyone to actually see. So people really got into it. And now some of the, uh, the greatest horror minds come out of England and mostly, um, horror writers. And I don't mean fictional horror writers, people who write on the subject, scholarly, scholarly, scholarly. I cannot say that word. Scholarly. Scholarly. Yes, papers and novel or books and reference materials about horror cinema, especially of the 1980s. I'm I mean, getting a little a personal. Thrower book for Christ's sake. I mean, one of the the uh, the main people that comes out of the UK that writes incredibly scholarly things about horror movies is one of the reasons that we do this show on on my end. You know, when I was a teenager, I uh, I heard of the Anno Dracula series and I thought it was insane. I thought the whole idea behind it was. Like, wait, so this guy took all these different worlds and made it one weird vampire thing. This is crazy. I've got to find this. And I spent just as long as I did looking for Video Nasties movies trying to find Kim Newman books. And, you know, uh, growing up and, and being able to be in a younger generation than these guys, you get almost a gift of being able, you know, for them to retell their lives and their stories and who they are, and like Kim Newman, he's a god to me. He's literally one of the reasons that I love talking about movies, I love talking about horror. Kim Newman is one of the reasons I watch some of the worst shit I've seen and why I've seen so much Hammer I've seen. And these guys came from a, a generation of, of literally 
banned censored movies where you weren't allowed to enjoy the things that you you could because they're going to turn you into a, a rapist murderer. They're going to turn you into some belligerent redneck killer and you know Kim Newman isn't, you know, uh, a super bourgeois rich guy. So he's one of the many that was 12, 13 years old that was watching these movies and didn't rape and kill anybody or, you know, eat his own fucking guts. Clearly, these movies weren't damaging. And if anything, repeating this tonight uh, until we get into the next video nasties, it wasn't the movies. It was moral panic and the fact that people are stupid and they won't look at something for their own good. A person, well, it's also for them to not concentrate on all the ways they're actually being fucked by their government, by their job, by the corporations. People will take this. They're, you know, well, this is bad for me, so I can't – I'm not going to do this anymore. Question why it's bad for you. Question why the government's telling you this movie is going to make your kid turn into a killer. Don't just throw it away. I mean look at it. Examine what's going on here. If your kid is watching videos of a Russian guy killing people with a hammer, make them see a psychiatrist. That's alarming and ban some websites on their tablet or iPhone or whatever piece of technology you've given your four-year-old they definitely shouldn't have. But if they're watching Anthropophagus, God, you probably should maybe get them in, like, band or hockey or something because your kid's going to turn into a fucking nerd that really wants to talk about why Joe Diamato was really a hardworking, great guy and should be appreciated. And that should scare you more than anything else. Oh, it all comes full circle. Get your kids in band. Don't let them watch horror movies. All right. So I think that'll do it for this first episode. Do we have a name for this particular segment? The Video Nasties A through Z with Death by DVD. We do have one. Is that, is That's that all right? The first segment. <laughs> all right. Well, um, wow. I still feel like there's so much I don't know, and there is still so much more to learn as we go through, what, the next 69? or we, No, we're down to 70. We have 70, 70 more movies that we are going to run through once a month with you guys, two movies at a time. What's next? What's the next one? Can we give that away? Oh, the next one's going to be so rough. We have Axe, which is... Rough. Not a great film. Nope. <laughs> um, it is a pretty bloodless, for the most part... Uh, a lot of, of dialogue thriller movie and uh, um we have the beast in heat a nazi exploitation movie that is honestly one of the worst out of all of them because it is dumb as shit it is the first time i think i ever saw somebody's pubes ripped off and then eaten yeah do you like that do you like watching that beast in heat <laughs> yeah we're gonna get to that one's it's kind of funny I mean, out of all the Nazi exploitation films, that it's like a weird episode of Hogan's Heroes. Like it just doesn't stop. It's a very it's what Bob Crane really wanted Hogan's Heroes to actually be like to keep referencing Bob Crane endlessly. Leave Bob Crane out of this. I'll bring him up as much as possible. So the ashtray is full, the bottle's empty. We're waiting for that horror taxi. We're we're gonna catch it. The freeze frame doesn't drive us insane. All right, good night, pleasant tomorrow. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. 
Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem. Yeah, she's